start with a very, very famous quote. Expect great things, uh, attempt great things. Expect great things and attempt great things. It's a very famous quote uh, attributed to William Carey in 1792. Carey was a minister uh, in England, found himself gripped by the plight of the huge numbers of people around the world who didn't believe in Jesus, who'd never even heard of him. He found himself gripped and longing to do something about it. And he used these words as a part of his call to arms, urging a key gathering of fellow ministers to join him. He wanted his peers to expect great things from God. Greater things than perhaps they dared to expect up to that point, that God might choose to save thousands perhaps even millions of people around the world who'd not even yet heard the good news about Jesus, that this good news really could be spread through somewhere so vast as the world. But at the very same time, he also wanted his peers to attempt great things for God, to engage themselves in their churches uh, in an effort to see this come about, to, to expand their vision for what they might do as a part of it to call them into action. Now, as it happens, this William Carey has a significant association with this church. Um, Christopher Anderson, who was the founding pastor here a long time ago, uh, was actually a contemporary of this William Carey. Uh, they, they knew each other. Anderson apparently wanted to go and serve with Carey in world mission on the, on the mission field, but for health reasons, he was prevented from going, and so instead, he set up this church here. And we're still here, Charlotte Chapel. Uh, expect great things, uh, attempt great things, Carey said. And as a church, we still want to resonate with this same sentiment, this same phrase. We want to expect great things from God. We want to recognize without God at work, we have nothing at all. And at the same time, we want to attempt great things for God, believing that he would have them be done. Uh, looking back, uh, our church has sent missionaries uh, all over the world over these past 200 years while reaching out to those on our doorstep right here uh, as well. We've planted churches across the city. We've been supporting churches around the world. We've trained and sent out leader after leader into the wider church. We've moved into this wonderful new building, uh, expecting great things, uh, attempting great things. But we're not done yet. Uh, looking forward, as we continue to expect great things from our God, we're considering attempting, uh, as a church, a whole host of things for him in the year and the years to come. As we, as we stand on the brink, as it were, as we look forward, we're going to spend our next few Sunday evenings in the book of Nehemiah in the Bible. Uh, we're going to go look for wisdom Surely Nehemiah was someone who expected great things and attempted great things for God. Um, but before we dive into this story of Nehemiah, we need a little bit of context. Now, perhaps you're quite familiar with where Nehemiah fits in. I find it's one of the hard books to find. You know it's in there somewhere, but you can never quite put your finger on where it is. Let me tell you where it fits into the big story of the Bible. So God is choosing a, a people, making a people for himself, and he starts with one couple with Abraham and Sarah. And from them, he grows his own special people, his own chosen people. He gives them their own chosen land that he's promised to them. 
He makes his home among them, in the middle of them, in Jerusalem, in the temple. But time after time, God's people refuse to obey him. And so ultimately, after many warnings, he sends them into exile. He sends them away from the land he gave them. The temple, where his presence was manifest in the middle of them, is destroyed. And the city, Jerusalem, is torn down. Everything seems hopeless. It's kind of like Star Wars Episode 2, all is lost. But God promises this is not the end of the story. Uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah are both great prophets of the Bible. And both of them prophesy a coming return, a restoration for God's people. And when a new king rises to power, uh, one king called Cyrus, amazingly, he encourages God's people to go home. He encourages them to go home and to rebuild that temple. He even provides the resources they're going to need to do it. And precisely 70 years after Jerusalem fell and the temple was destroyed, it's back. Exactly like the prophets had predicted. Now this is basically where we're up to into the big story. Israel has been sent out of the land and they've started to find their way back. The temple is there. We're off of this kind of low watermark of all of Israel's story, the exile. We're off that rock bottom, but it is only a pale shadow of Israel's heyday that we get to see so far. It's not a glorious and victorious return. It's a, it's a temple, but a temple in the middle of a land that's still in great trouble. Things are not going brilliantly. And it's some years after that that we pick up the story with Nehemiah. So we're going to read now, and it might help you to have a Bible. If you don't have one with you, just pop your hand up, and our stewards will bring one out to you just now. We're going to read from the book of Nehemiah, which is on page 484 uh, in these church Bibles. So if you just pop your hand up if you don't have one, our stewards will get you one just now. And we're going to take this in a few different chunks as we think about it together. Just a few verses to start with. So Nehemiah chapter 1. It's not the easiest one to find. Page 484. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. We'll carry on in a minute. But here's the scene setting for the story we're looking at. The eponymous Nehemiah is in Susa. Susa is the capital city of the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire is the one who currently basically rule the entire known world. 
And this Nehemiah is cupbearer to the king, we'll find out in verse 11. And cupbearer is looking after the king's cup. Now, this means you've got to be an expert at matching wine to cuisine. It's really important. You have to know your Merlot from your Chablis. That's very, very important. But it is also a very highly trusted role because your job as cupbearer to the king is to be the one who dies first when the king is poisoned. It's a cheery option for you, isn't it? His job is to test the king's wine and check it's safe. Um, But also... Because the cupbearer tends to be with the king so often, because the king wants wine so often, I imagine, the cupbearer is there so often uh, and needs to be so trusted. It tends to be a senior role, a chief of staff, actually, in some cases. Um, Nehemiah, as one of these Jewish exiles, a a foreigner, has risen right to the very top of the civil service. That's a bit like Daniel, if you know Daniel's story. I bet he had a good pension to look forward to when he was on his way to retiring. But his brother, Nehemiah's brother, and some some friends arrived from Jerusalem. um, And he asked them, apparently, I guess quite casually, how those from Israel who survived the exile are doing. How, How are they getting on? Their answer, not good. Not good at all. Think about this for a minute. Imagine you are part of Israel, exiled into this Babylonian kingdom, okay? And you see this prophesied guy, Cyrus, show up. You're like, there's a guy, Cyrus. He's going to show up. He's going to send us. Cyrus shows up. You hear the decree from Cyrus. He says, go home. Go home. Rebuild the temple. And in fact, let me give you the stuff you need to rebuild the temple. Can you imagine what that would be like? They must have been utterly overwhelmed, amazed and astonished. They must have been overjoyed. It's like their dream come true. Everything God said was going to happen. It's it's happening now. We get to the time of Nehemiah. Here we are in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, and the, the people are in great trouble and disgrace. Now, I don't know how your mastery of ancient Persian kings goes, but the 20th year of Artaxerxes didn't help me that much. I had to look it up. I looked it up, and let me put it this way. Here's where they're up to, okay? It is now 141 years after Jerusalem was destroyed and defeated and crushed. But here's the more important thing. It's 71 years after the temple was finished. 71 years after the temple. And the people are in great trouble, distress, that's not good. Can you imagine the first people from Israel who got to come back to the land thinking, this is God keeping his promises. This is the great restoration. So excited. Imagine the hopes and dreams of those first returnees. Imagine they see the temple foundations dedicated. They see the temple finished and dedicated. We're on our way, you can hear them saying. This is it. It's all coming together. Things can only get better. Cue election broadcast. But they haven't. 70 more years. 70 more years and the people are still just in trouble and disgrace. Why are they in trouble and disgrace? Because Jerusalem's defensive wall is broken down. Uh, Its gates have been burned by fire, the text says, which I always think, What were the other options they were thinking of? Were they thinking of a mischievous young boy with a magnifying glass who burned the gates instead? But fire, Jerusalem, is very much as the Babylonians left it. The Babylonians came in, conquered, destroyed the temple, pulled the walls down, burned the place to the ground. It's basically like that still. 
after 70 years. It must feel pretty hopeless, don't you think? 70 years of no progress. I can't imagine there's much of a kind of clean for the queen civic pride there anymore. Not a lot of fuel for optimism about how things might develop for God's people. That's a pretty bleak report, really. So when we read the next verse, when we read of the way Nehemiah responds to this report, perhaps we shouldn't be that surprised. Verse 4, when I heard these things, I, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah is gripped by this terrible situation, by what he hears about Jerusalem and its people. It gets him right here. And that makes sense, right? Because this is tragic. That's depressing stuff. It hasn't been a, a glorious return from exile and the return of the, the splendor and the ascendancy of Israel. It's been a meh, a damp squib. Not up and to the right, but basically a flat line. So it kinda, his response kind of makes sense because this is sad. But on the other hand, it makes no sense at all. You see, it has been this way for 71 years. It's been this way since Nehemiah was born. It's never been any different. This is nothing new. This is not a surprise. This isn't news. This isn't even newsworthy enough for Sky to broadcast it. It's just the way it's always, always been. And if Nehemiah was fussed about this stuff, well, he could already have been in Jerusalem. You see, the most recent set of returnees, the last crowd who went back, went back with this priest called Ezra some 14 years earlier, and they went back with a letter from the very same king Nehemiah serves. Exactly the same king. So you can bet he was there. You can bet he knew about this letter, and we can read the letter in our Bibles. Uh, in Ezra 7.13, it says, I decree that any of the Israelites in my kingdom, including the priests and Levites who volunteer to go to Jerusalem with you, can go. Anyone who wanted to, anyone who volunteered could have gone back already. Nehemiah could have gone back ages ago. So it's not news, okay? Nothing's changed. It's just the way it's always, always been. And there have been other opportunities to do something about it if Nehemiah wanted to. But it gets him right here. It gets him right here this time. Uh, that's the first thing I want us to see from this passage is that Nehemiah is gripped. He's gripped not by something new, not by something unknown, but by something which is wrong, something which should change, something which is not the way it should be. If we look back into the lives of many of those who've had a significant impact, many of those who God has called to very different works, I think we find the same thing. I think about, for example, there was a sudden explosion in foreign mission in the 19th century, something this Kerry we started with uh, had a significant part in. It wasn't a new thing that the world was filled with so many people who knew nothing about Jesus. That wasn't news. That wasn't surprise or information. But God started to grip people with it in a new way. So Nehemiah here is, he's suddenly gripped. The situation is not the way it should be. Uh, it needs to change. Something needs to happen. Now, I want us to think about the scale of the problem here. This is a colossal problem. 
This is an overwhelming problem we're talking about. The, the remnant, the small remnant of God's people live back in the land in trouble and disgrace and a whole city around them lies in ruins. Beyond that, a shattered nation. 71 years haven't changed anything. They've barely scratched the surface. Think for a moment about how you might respond to a problem of that scale. Something that seems just intractable, unsolvable. Basically, just like it's always going to be that way. I don't know what you'd think of famine in Africa. It's just always going to be that way. Conflict in the Middle East. Well, it's just always going to be that way. Well, say something like that does start to trouble you. Say a gigantic, one of these vast problems does start to nag at you. How do you respond to that? Most of us, I think, if we're honest, just shrug our shoulders. Oh, well, that's just the way it is, I guess. This is, this is too big for me. I could never make a difference to that scale of problem. I could never move the needle on that thing. I think most of the time, we're pretty quick to let ourselves off the hook. We're pretty quick to take those sort of stirrings inside of us and say, calm down, calm down, have a nice cup of tea. Now, perhaps we'll put a few pounds in a charity box to assuage our conscience. But I think most of us just shrug our shoulders. I guess there is another end to the spectrum, right? There's some who feel this urgent need to act uh, to do something, really to do anything, uh, respond by throwing ourselves at the first opportunity we get, the first window we jump on the next plane. We just show up wild-eyed with no plan, no prep, no supplies. We're not really going to be any help. Look at the way Nehemiah responds to this. Does he sit back and shake his head and say, oh, well, and get back to the wine cellar? Or is he, on the other hand, the proverbial action man? Does he grab his chisel and say, I'm going to fix that wall? He does neither. Back to verse 4. I sat down and wept. Uh, he's moved and gripped. He's feeling it. And then see what he does next. He prays. Uh, he prays. He says, for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And I want us tonight to look closely at how he prayed, to pay attention to it. Uh, why? Because there's going to be a test. <laughs> Not really, but there's going to be an opportunity to practice what we're learning. Uh, later in our gathering, we're going to pray, and we're going to try and pray using some of the lessons that we can learn here. So how does Nehemiah pray? Let's read his prayer together, and then we'll consider it in a bit more detail. Starting at verse 5. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer that your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We've not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me 
and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I'll gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people who you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. This is how Nehemiah responds to being gripped, newly gripped by what has happened. Now, I do have to ask for your forgiveness here, but I couldn't help myself. I want to give you seven Ps about this prayer, seven Ps, but seven is the perfect number. And when you're a preacher, you just can't resist some of these. Um, so they're quite quick though, don't worry. First P, where does the prayer start? Perspective. Look at how it starts. Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God. Nehemiah starts his prayer by remembering who he is talking to. He gives himself perspective, which is just as well when you consider what it is he's planning on doing. When you consider how overwhelming the challenge he's thinking about taking on is. And you can see this perspective actually sticks with him throughout his prayer. When he gets right to the end of his prayer, it ends in verse 11 with him asking for favor in the presence of this man, he says. And the this man he is talking about is King Artaxerxes, the supreme ruler of Persia, the most powerful person in the world at the time. There's not a soul on earth more powerful than him. And in Nehemiah's prayer, who is he? With a heavenly perspective, he's just this man. And see, he adds a reflection on God's connection to his people. When he's remembering, when he's giving himself perspective, I remember who God is. That tells me about who everyone else is. But now how God is connected to his people. He's a God who keeps his covenant of love, verse 5 says. Keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commands. It's another piece of perspective. He's setting the scene as he begins to pray. Think for a moment, if you know, about how Jesus teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Where does the Lord's Prayer start? I think it starts with a similar thing, with a perspective-setting moment. Our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. You get both the relationship between God and us as people, we're his children, and you get his exalted heavenly place. So when we pray, we need to remember who we're praying to, right? How great, awesome, how mighty and powerful our God is. We need to remember what that means for who everyone else is and how it is we're connected to him, how he's chosen to relate to us with grace and mercy. First P, perspective. Second P, penitence. That's a fancy word. Penitence, um, for recognizing, a fancy word for recognizing we've done wrong. For repentance, you might say. Nehemiah prays in a way which shows he recognizes his own failings uh, as well as the failings of his people. And he knows these are part of what's fed into the problem that he's confronted with. And isn't that true so often? The problems in our world really we're a part of what is driving them. He's not trying to dress himself up. He's not trying to puff himself up. 
He doesn't try and cover himself up before God. Instead, he's being painfully transparent, uh, openly admitting he fails. He shares in his family's failings, in his people's failings. Of course, it'd be silly to do anything else, wouldn't it? Psalm 139 tells us just how completely God knows us knows our words before they're on our tongues, knows our thoughts from afar, knows when we rise and when we sit down, knows every day of our lives. Nothing is hidden from him. And so in the deepest possible sense, God already knows us. So pretending we're someone we're not, pretending we measure up when we don't, pretending we have a right to anything from him, when apart from Jesus we have nothing, pretending our motives even are pure when they're not. And that's going to get us anywhere. Instead, I guess the Bible teaches us 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, in a way, if you think about that first P, perspective, well, the second P, penitence, kind of flows naturally out of that. It's just a bit more perspective, really, isn't it? When we know who God is and what he's asked for, we remember who we are and how we don't measure up. The more we grasp his magnificence and perfection, the more we see our insufficiency and imperfection. Perspective, penitence, third P, promises. Now, Nehemiah prays God's promises back to him. Uh, Apparently to remind him of them. Uh, remember, he says in verse 8, remember the instructions you gave your servant Moses. That seems like a slightly odd thing to do with God. Do we think God has forgotten the instructions he gave to his servant Moses? Of course not. This isn't like trying to remind a political party of what they wrote in their manifesto. Remember what you said about police. Remember what you said about education. It isn't like Nehemiah trying to, you know, remind God of the things that God was trying to forget or quietly squeeze under the rug. Remember here is covenant language. What do I mean by covenant? Uh, A a promise meant to last a lifetime. Remember is covenant language. When Nehemiah calls God to remember his covenant, what he's wanting God to do is to bring that covenant into the present, to realize the promise here and now, to uphold it, promise in view here it's pretty straightforward right if God's people are unfaithful they're scattered if they're faithful they'll be gathered again no matter where the one thing that had me scratching my head though about this promise was why is Nehemiah calling on God to uphold this promise at this point in the story when it seems like that's what he's already done remember the big story we started with God's people okay are in exile And then the return has already begun. The temple is already rebuilt. It seems like God has already answered this. Nehemiah is able to ask about a Jewish remnant in Judah because there is one back in Jerusalem. They're back. God has already kept this promise. So why is Nehemiah asking God to uphold this promise? The more I've thought about it, the more I've wondered whether what's happening here is because as Nehemiah finds himself gripped by the plight of those who return to Jerusalem, has he moved between these two categories and this promise he's calling God to honor? Has he moved from unfaithful and therefore scattered, here he is in the capital city of Persia, into the faithful and wanting to be gathered category? 
Is he asking God to gather him back, perhaps, to the promised land? Because remember, he could have already gone back with Ezra, right? But he didn't. Perhaps a faithful Israelite would have done, right? But perhaps Nehemiah had too cushy a job with too nice benefits, and he thought, actually, I like it here. Thank you very much. Perhaps if he was a faithful Israelite, he should have already walked away. Perhaps he should have longed to be where God put his name, longed to be with God's people. Now, that would mean this penitence, this kind of confession, is connected to the way he calls on God to uphold his promise to restore those who confess to the land. I wonder if, for some of us, the same thing might be true. If our penitence or our repentance could move us to a place where we would have the right to call on God to uphold some of his promises to us. Perspective, penitence, promises, Passion, verse 10, I think, shows us Nehemiah's newfound passion. He is excited about God's people. They're your servants and your people, the ones who you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. I I think this is the, the heart driver for his prayer. Nehemiah's heard about the trouble and disgrace that God's people are facing. His heart has gone out to them. He wants to do something about it to change things. His passion is for God's people. And the wonderful thing here then is that Nehemiah's passion for God's people is aligned with God's passion for God's people. He has been gripped by a God thing. Ah, These people that Nehemiah wants to go and help, this verse shows they're people that God identifies with, right? He calls them your servants, your people, the ones that God acts on behalf of, the one you redeemed. When we find our passion aligns with God's passion, That is a glorious and exciting thing. That's a moment that we can call on God to keep his promises. We get to join God at his own work, to work alongside him, to see him at work. I think that's the passionate, emphatic heart of the prayer. And at the start of verse 11, there's a a word in the original Hebrew that's hard to translate. It's called a a particle of entreaty for the linguists out there. It's kind of like a, a kind of pleading face. Or a, or, or a gut range. Older translations try and capture it with, with an oh, like, oh, Lord. A, a heartfelt please might get the sense of it. Nehemiah's passion, oh, Lord, his passion is for God's people, and he's pleading with God for his help as he prepares to act. You're doing well. Perspective, penitence, promise, passion, peers. Just a quick one, one we'll pick on later. Nehemiah is not alone in this. Look at verse 11. Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Uh, Nehemiah is praying himself, but he's not alone. He's gathered others who share his passion. He's praying alongside them. And it is good to gather with other people who share your passion who are excited by the same God things that are gripping you to spur one another on, to fire one another up. It's good. Perhaps it's even essential. Uh, If you want to go fast, go alone, right? If you want to go far, go together, they say. It's hard to stay hot by yourself. A coal removed from the fire does not stay hot long. 
How many of you like to play with fire? You notice with a fire, if you just have one log by itself, it won't burn. Two or three next to each other, burns a peach, right? Nehemiah prays with peers. We're getting there. You're doing very well. Perspective, patience. Whoop. Perspective, penitence. Promises, passion. Peers, sixth P, plans. Nehemiah prays about his plans. Give your servant success today, he prays. You see, he has a plan. He has a practical, specific plan. He has action he is going to take, but he's not just diving into it. He's trying to bring this plan to God for his blessing. Why should we pray about our plans? Maybe this is totally obvious to you. But Proverbs tells us, uh, in their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. That's Proverbs 16, 9. Or Proverbs tells us again, many are the plans in a person's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. That's Proverbs 19, 21. Now, we're going to look at that some more next week. But what I want us to see today is that Nehemiah brings his plans to God in prayer. Sometimes I think we can feel like praying and planning are in opposition. Sometimes we feel like they're almost mutually exclusive, right? It can seem that spiritually minded people pray and unspiritual people just crack on and plan and figure out what it is they're going to do. It can feel like uh, it's only ever God's job, like it's taking matters into our own hands. I don't think this tension and this opposition really needs to exist. I think Nehemiah shows us, and he's going to show us more next week, that it is good and right to pray and to plan. To pray and to plan. The two don't pull against each other. The two reinforce each other. They belong together. Final P. You made it. Perspective. Penitence, promises, passion, peers, plan, final P, perseverance. Nehemiah prays. Boy, does he pray. He prays with some serious perseverance about his plans. He plays all the way from Kislev in chapter 1, verse 1, through to Nisan in chapter 2, verse 1. Dates mean anything to you? Probably not. Uh, unless Nisan is the month between BMW and Audi, which would be very convenient. Nisan, Kislev to Nisan, how long is that? Four months. Four months, he prays, from kind of November, December time through to March, April, right up to the time of the Passover. I don't know what the longest is you've prayed about anything specific. I'm sure some of you are real warriors in prayer, and you can stick to something specific for the long term. But many of us need to learn that discipline. Many of us don't have that perseverance. Jesus tells a whole parable about persevering in prayer the persistent widow. Just to make this one point, we should keep on praying and not give up. Perseverance. A lot to learn from watching somebody pray, isn't there? But I want to take us just back one step as we close and ask us to reflect on the whole passage. What does this really have to do with you and me? Uh, we're not exiles hoping to return to some promised land. There's no broken down city wall for us to build up. What does this actually have to do with us? I think what we see here is God at work. He grips Nehemiah's heart. 
uh, with how incomplete, with how unfinished, with how unsatisfactory this return from exile is. He calls Nehemiah to be a part of it, to join in with what God is doing. And this is going to turn Nehemiah's life absolutely upside down. Now, you and I, we live in the middle of a much bigger story, a much bigger story, a longer exile. We were sent out of God's presence at the beginning, out of the garden with Adam and Eve. We shared their disobedience. And we have a greater return from exile. At the end, we've been brought back into God's family through Jesus, through his perfect obedience. And yet, in the same way, our return is, in a way, incomplete. God's gathering in of his people is incomplete. It's unfinished. But he wants every one of us to be a part of that. Perhaps you've heard this call to join in God's gathering of people again and again and again. Perhaps you've felt it nag at you sometimes. And I wonder if we've sometimes shrugged our shoulders and said, too big, too hard, too much. But perhaps it is time for Kerry's words to stir us again. Perhaps we should expect great things and attempt great things. Perhaps it is time for us to be challenged and when we get stirred about these things, not to shrug it off, not to dive into action, but to see if God would have things change, if perhaps God might want to even use us to change them. See, something happened to Nehemiah's heart in this chapter. Something happened to Nehemiah's heart, and it's going to turn his life upside down as he joins God's plan and purposes. Well, has something happened to you? If you believe in Jesus, it has. I wonder if your heart is stirred and whether it is time for you to begin to pray and to plan how you might join in. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. And then we're going to try and put some of this into practice. It'll be interesting. Let's pray.